The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by retired professor, Dr. Paolo Urio, who directed the master's in public management program at the University of Geneva and managed the training program for senior Chinese public officials on behalf of the Swiss government, which gave him access to parties, officials, uh, universities, and party schools. He's also the author of America and the China Threat, From the End of History to the End of Empire. Buongiorno, Professor Urio. Grazie for joining the broadcast. How are you doing? Fine, fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Um, I just finished reading your uh, excellent book uh, from the publisher uh, Clarity Press. Uh, I think I have become their unofficial podcaster now. Uh, I've interviewed Scott Ritter, Alfred Desayas, Andrei Martianov, Keith Vanderpale, Paul Craig Roberts, uh, and now yourself. Oh, so that's excellent. at least... Excellent. Yeah, at least half a dozen now. Uh, so there's a lot in your book, uh, and it begins uh, discussing um, the goals of U.S. foreign policy, um, which is basically the purpose, whose purpose is basically to maintain the American uh, status of so great power, to which I will add, you know, full spectrum dominance, like basically to take over the entire planet. So you talk about, you know, U.S. foreign policy, uh, messianic activism and, and American exceptionalism and, and things like this. And then later on, you talk about uh, China, uh, the myths uh, about China. But so maybe we can start with your your view about the U.S. Okay, okay. Um, yes, I was practically forced to uh, study the history of the U.S., because I was interested in China. So you cannot speak about China if you don't at the same time speak about first the European powers in the 19th century and then the United States, of course. So uh, I think you, you must go back to the origins of the American ideology, which developed between the end of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century. And then practically it didn't change. It, it stayed as it was. So, as you mentioned already, uh, exceptionalism, universalism, manifest destiny, the right and the duty to lead the world toward the end of history, uh, meaning the triumph of liberal democracy and capitalism. And uh, if you add on top of that God, you will give to that ideology a touch of sanctity, and you will uh, transform it in something which is unshakable and practically indestructible. But you can summarize all this in a single word, and that word is expansion. Expansion, I got the idea in a letter written by one of the most famous American presidents, Thomas Jefferson, written in 1801. Yeah. 1801, that is only 25 years after the Declaration of Independence and 22 years before the proclamation of the Monroe Doctrine. By the way, that letter was addressed to the, at the time, governor of uh, Virginia, which was James uh, Monroe, of course, 24 years before. So it's very important time of the um, American um, um, state. Uh, and in that letter, you find a sentence, very short sentence, which has been written with no pathos, with no emotion, apparently, in any case. And as a matter of fact, 
as a matter of fact. And uh, in another interview, I dare say that it was like a registered letter sent by postman Jefferson to the American leadership, telling this is what you have to do in the future. I'm going to explain. In that letter, Jefferson puts together the development of the United States in all its dimensions, the definition of the national interest, and consequently, the need to expand uh, abroad, abroad. And he says, where? And quite naturally he says, where we will cover the whole Northern continent, and why not also the Southern continent, with people speaking the same language and governed under similar forms and by similar laws. It's beautiful, he said. It's really, it's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the essence of the uh, American foreign policy for the years to come, expansion, expansion. So this is, um, has become something very fundamental for orienting uh, foreign policy for the United States to the point that, in my opinion, I may be wrong, but it has become what I call a weapon of mass destruction in the sense that it has destroyed the capacity of the American establishment to conceive of a world different from the world America made and in which America may play a different role. This sounds a bit theoretical, but it is not because it has some very practical consequences. The first one is the incapacity of the American establishment to read the exact intentions of the other side. We are witnessing something happening ju just now between uh, US with its military alliance, NATO, and on the other side, Russia. I think the United States establishment made a big mistake in misreading the real intentions of Russia. This is the first uh, incapacity. There is a second one, which is also very important, and it is the incapacity to take stock of the changes that occurred in the distribution of power resources in the international system since at least the Second World War, maybe even before, even before. This is very important because if you take some basic but hard, very hard economic data between 1990 and uh, 2020, a span of about 30 years. 1990 is a good date for the United States because uh, it is uh, one year after the fall of the Berlin Wall, a year before the fall of the Soviet Union. And for China, it's also an important date because it is one year after the Tiananmen events and one year before when Deng Xiaoping decided to relance the process of reform, giving more space to market mechanism and so on. So it's a good date. If you take the share of these two countries, China and US, their share in the world GDP in 1990, you would see that at that time, China's GDP was lower than 4%. 
and US was still at 21%, which means about something above one-fifth of the total world with a population of less than 5%, quite impressive. But 30 years later, 1990, um, 2020, you will see that China has overtaken the United States in uh, purchasing power parity, of course, at about 17%, US are down at 17%, 16%, sorry. So one, one point difference, but the trend is going the same direction, going down for the US and going up for, for China. If you take the share of import exports between these two dates, you have exactly the same pattern. But now it's more interesting to take the G7, that is the United States and its major allies. And you can see that in uh, 1990, this uh, group of, uh, of countries, Western countries, not only Western countries, because there is also Japan, uh, these allies of the United States, they have about 50% of the world total for both GDP and import export for a population of about, I would say, 10% of the total world, which is impressive. But 10 years later, it has gone down by 20 points to about 30%, 30%. And if you take the percentage for the same data for the BRICS, that is uh, the five countries comprising Russia, China, India, uh, South uh, uh, Africa, and Brazil, you will see that in 1990, their percentage of GDP in the world total was under 12%, and the import export was less than 3%. But 30 years later, the share of GDP went up to 28%, that is just a bit lower than the G7. The increase of import export is also occurred, but it's less impressive they are about 20%, so 10 points below the G7. So these changes are very important. Some people maybe would say that, okay, BRICS, they have some problems. South Africa has problems, Brazil has problems, and India, we don't know exactly in what direction it will direct its foreign policy towards the United States or toward the Asian continent, but interesting enough, India did not condemn Russia for its intervention in, uh, in Ukraine. So as China, they, they take it more or less the same position. So it's very, very important to acknowledge that changes within the weak part of the BRICS may take place. And also, of course, the core, the hard core of the BRICS is the tandem Russia-China. And that tandem has become more and more important, more and more close to the point that some experts speak today of a de facto alliance between Russia and China. So big changes in the, in the uh, uh, overall structure of the international system, which the uh, American establishment has difficulties in understanding and in taking account too. But there is a last, if I may, a last uh, incapacity. This, I, I, I take this incapacity from a British uh, diplomat 
uh, Sir Percy Craddock, who criticized the British foreign policy toward China during the last years of the Hong Kong British colony between 1992 and 97. And uh, he used a very interesting, uh, very short criticism. He says, he refers to the incapacity of England, but we can transfer to the United States today, to put itself in the feet, in the shoes of the other side. Difficulty or incapacity to put itself in the shoes of the other side. The metaphor is very interesting because it didn't say the incapacity to put itself in the place of the other side. Because this is what the United States does all the time. They put itself or it put itself in the place of China or Russia with its own value, with its own way of thinking. And the result is inevitably always the same. That is, China, Russia should become like us, that is, a liberal democracy with a true market economy or capitalism. Uh, if, if you replace uh, the shoes and the size of the feet with the ego of the American establishment, you will see that it is impossible for that size of ego, which in a shoe size would be 12 or 13 or 14, it would be difficult to put itself into the shoes of China or, or, uh, or Russia or any other country. So there are three incapacities, which are quite amazing because uh, the United States, I mean, intellectual in the United States or former um, civil servants, uh, former um, professors specialized in Russia, and China. They had a very long experience in, uh, in those countries, very long experience, very long, uh, very interesting, very profound knowledge of Russia and China. But today's uh, establishment seems to be not capable of taking advantage of this knowledge and reorient the American foreign policy. And this is a big problem because as uh, Sir Percy Craddock say, said about, uh, about uh, Britain, we can say the same thing about the United States. Let's hope that the United States will not reserve its biggest mistake for the last act of the play. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's borderless health insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation 
book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. That That's something that I have been worrying about for for a long time and just a final you know thought comment on us before i ask you further about china and the emerging multipolar world you know i, I i'm an american i was born in the us and there are a lot of things i love about america i would call, consider yeah. myself a, a patriot but today and especially in what's happening now with ukraine and russia you know, it's, it's like the Cold War and, you know, a, a, a sense of McCarthyism is coming back. And if you don't, you know, put the Ukraine flag on your Facebook profile, yeah, like yeah. Pe- people are thinking you're anti-American. Where And, and sure. uh, you also talk about in your book about Christianity. And I, I'm a strong believing Christian, but I think there are many things wrong. Like in the Christian perspective, we're not political. You know, Christians, should, there's the difference. If you read like about Christ, it's like he, he gets he doesn't really care so much about politics. It's about preaching exactly. preaching the gospel right socially exactly. or culturally exactly. not to go aggressively exactly. to other countries and force people to do anything you go preach if they don't want to convert or don't want to listen okay exactly. Well, exactly. And, yeah. yeah and some things you point out in your book uh you say that america has always in reality been an arist- aristocratic repu- uh, republicanism uh, elite yeah. democracy uh, yeah. um oligarchy democracy or plutocracy and you know also now the operational distinction between the roles of the three powers legislative executive and judiciary basically have been effectively deleted and we see that especially under biden now where he's just throwing out right. exec- executive orders uh, right. and so effectively like the they're, they're, for the longest time, we, we haven't really had this democratic uh, republic. Right. And, and right. just a, f- a few more things you mentioned in your book. Uh, you yeah. talk about how the U.S. is always bullying. Um, I kind of liken it to the false, the, cla- the classic tactic of a false flag uh, operation, where yeah. you, you you write that. Um, we, we discover the frequent American ways of pushing the other to yeah. attack us. This is yeah. achieved by implementing different kinds of provocations, whether by right. the US, US or allies, so that in the end, the other is left with little choice, either to accept, exactly. accept American conditions or exactly. to respond in ways that will be unacceptable uh, uh, you know, to the US. And this is kind of like what we're seeing now with the Russia-Ukraine situation, where they put Russia in an exactly. unacceptable exactly. situation. So you exactly. know, if you have any other thoughts along these lines uh, regarding the US. Yeah, well, I think the most famous case, which is controversial, of course, is the case of Japan in uh, during the Second World War. Uh, suddenly, uh, uh, the president of the United States decided to cut uh, the import of oil from the West Indies to, to Japan. And Japan, well, they could say, okay, we obey the order given to us to leave the Asian continent, which was really impossible. I mean, psychologically, culturally impossible. And they decided to attack Pearl Harbor without a formal declaration of war, which was certainly a big big mistake. More than a mistake was a violation of international law. Yeah, but I think I think I I, I put a, a short paragraph in my book saying that these all these tactics used by United States to push the uh, the other part to make a mistake, they 
experimented that during the Indian Wars. In the Indian Wars, there are many, many examples of uh, similar tactics, of course, in another era with different technologies and so on. But for example, United States, well, everybody knows that they have a lot of military bases abroad. Uh, now, maybe a bit less than 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, but uh, 750 is the, the is uh, considered as accurate. But uh, during the, the Indian Wars, they used the same tactic with the forts. The forts, uh, the big, um, the great specialist of uh, uh, military uh, bases abroad, the United States, David Wine, he, he, he calculated that during the Indian Wars, there were, if I remember well, between 80 and 90 forts, which is military bases in the Indian territory. So this, this is one of the tactics. And then all the treaties signed with the, with the Indian tribes and the, the very rarely respected. So, uh, and even today, as you mentioned, I think in the introduction, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that uh, they learned little by little also because they never, until recently, they never had to face a very strong enemy. The Indians, the black people in slavery, the fading uh, Spanish empire, the Mexicans, not very, and then uh, in the Caribbean, also not very strong. Even during the First World War, which the United States joined at the last moment, uh, for following the, uh, the, the, the views of the, uh, the president of that time, uh, Wilson. But then, unfortunately for Wilson, the, uh, the American um, parliament didn't accept the US to join the League of Nations. And so there was an interpeer period between the two world wars where the United States were there without being really there. But they were there in any case because they, they were there. They were in, uh, in China, they were in the Philippines, they were uh, in the Caribbean, they were almost, almost everywhere, almost everywhere. But it is during the Second World War that they acquired the, 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 the faith in their capacity to run the world. And the, there was a very short period of time where it was the case. It is between 19. 45, the use of the atomic bomb, and 1949, in August, the Russian, they exploded their first atomic bomb, then the monopoly was broken, and two months later, Mao won the civil war. So this, uh, this was four years where exactly they were the, the strongest in the world. And if you read the, um, uh, uh, the speech by the president, Truman, uh, announcing the use of the atomic bomb, I think I published a few paragraphs of that. You understand, you understand by the use of words, the use of uh, uh, expression, how confident he was that uh, America was the strongest uh, state. And he says, you've seen what we, we are able to do and be careful because in Third World War, he said, Third World War, you will see what he, he, he will like. He, he will look like. It will look like, and uh, and it's a, it's a 
it's and even during the first cold war using the first cold war in fact well R- soviet russia was a very strong nuclear power but from the economic point of view it was not you are not it never matched the economy of the united states and this is one of the reasons not the only one of course one of the reasons it collapsed you couldn't match the economic power of the united states and if i can now recollect what i said about china and the 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 comparison between china and united states in the economic terms well today the problem is there it's not so much military it's really the economy chinese economy is now about at the same level as the united states in purchasing power parity but in five years it will also match in uh, exchange rate and in uh, 10 years it will be much bigger than the united states so uh, the problem is there and to to come back to the brics and to the tandem uh, china russia you have here a very strong mast which is capable of attracting other uh, country not only from an economic point of view but also because those country are also willing to escape the dictatorship of the american empire so we have several example you have iran you have syria you have afghanistan you have uh, thailand uh, south america where you live you have uh, many many example so uh, africa also all over the world you have countries which are trying to escape that uh, dependence from the united states and so little by little they 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 aggregate with the other pole with the other economic pole yes yes and and if you look at the at the brics no not the brics the the, the belton road initiative you mentioned before belton road initiative uh is very worrying for the united states and the very the very strong maybe the strongest uh, american think tank the council on foreign relations last year it established a task force for evaluating the consequences of the western road on the world and on the united states and very worrying they come to the conclusion that the united states cannot match the western road initiative project for project dollar for dollar meaning that they don't have enough enough money they say that we as usually uh, this is one of the light motives of the us uh, we and our allies and partners but um, okay the european union also they have a project to match the western road initiative but it's something new and the western road initiative it's a train which started uh, several years ago and it will be difficult to uh, to face that uh, that train it's going faster and faster yeah, i think the the european initiative i think it's called global gateway i was just reading about it the other day and originally the american initiative what was it called something blue dot network i think they renamed it uh, uh build back better or something yeah exactly yeah. and yeah, i was yeah, just, but... just going to comment i have i have this book day of deceit uh, about re- regarding pearl harbor Uh, I, I, I learned this in Geneva School of Diplomacy as well, studying geopolitics, that we, you have actually, actually documents where the U.S. government said that they wanted to intentionally push Japan, uh, put them in a corner to force them to attack America first. Yeah. And that they knew 
that the Pearl Harbor attack was coming, the American government, and they intentionally let the people, uh, Americans, uh, military and people uh, die in Pearl Harbor to use that as an excuse to get into World uh, World II. I mean, there's a thesis which is uh, plausible, 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 because uh, in Pearl Harbor, there were the large part of the Navy, but not the, the carriers. Not the carriers, they were put somewhere else, I can't remember where, but not in Pearl Harbor. And at that time, carriers were very important because they, it is, is the, uh, the tandem between the Navy and the Air Force. So they, they work together. So, and this is one of the major, uh, reasons why, uh, America was able to defeat Japan apart from the atomic bomb. Yeah. Because, uh, it's just, but that's a story for another day. I want to get back to China. Um, <laughs> which you, yeah. you, talk, you talk a lot about in, in your book and today we're, we're painted this picture that China is going to take over the world. Like now I, I'm not a fan of, of communism or, or Marxism, but I'm trying to evaluate how things really stand like reality and, and truth. And I have a hard time. Uh, as well as you, you point out in your book that historically China has not, you know, we see that in fact, as you've laid out, the United States empire has been the most expansionist uh, and aggressive. And if you compare just the history, China is not really the case. So I have a hard time today creating this vision that, you know, the American media uh, paints for us regarding China. And, uh, you know, people talk about China as a rising empire. Uh, you, you call it a party state. You say that harmony and stability are the key elements for the Chinese yeah. governance uh, today. Yeah. It mixes yeah. Confucian and Western value right. res- resources and implements it with an authoritarian political system. So how should we think about China today? Well, uh, as you suggested, if you look at history, China never wanted to conquer the rest of the world. Between the 14th and the 15th century, they had the capacity, the economic power, the technological power to conquer the rest of the world. But I say that it's not in their genius. It's not in their genius to go to conquer, to establish exchanges, commerce, culture. Okay, they, they did it with the old uh, Belt Road, with, with the old Belt Road, they did it, but they never had the, the, felt the necessity to go abroad with their military and to occupy another country. There have been cases, of course, but only at the, at the periphery of the of, of, of China. So never far away. Even India, they never, I mean, the, the UK conquered England several uh, thousand kilometers away, but uh, the, the India and China, they have a common uh, border, but no, nothing, nothing. So um, I think historically, it's difficult to imagine that uh, ideologically, culturally, China suddenly, because it has economic power, she would like to conquer the rest of the world. I don't think so. The other reason is that the rest of the world is not the same as it was between the the 16th century and the 19th century when we went abroad. When we went abroad, no problem. We were the strongest by far. But now, even if the US is on the decline, even if Europe military doesn't count much, uh, the US are still there. And they will not fade away. 
from one day to the other. So China will have to confront a strong power, even if declining, a strong power, and they will have to be very careful because otherwise there could be a clash between the two, not only economic clash, but also military. So I don't think that uh, both for historical reason, for cultural reason, and for the... <laughs> The, the equilibrium between the, the new powers in the new multipolar world, the United States will not go away. We, as, as, a, as a Western and, and you as an American, I think we can hope that they will change the way they manage their own country and not only their foreign policy to give to the American people, which is a great people, as I wrote in, in my book. Uh, but I think it's it has not well been served by its establishment for a long time now, for a long time. So um, I think the establishment should change its uh, way of managing the country internally and managing its uh, international relations. My question, big question is, is today the American establishment able to do that? I would say no. There should be a, a, a big push from inside, a big push from, from inside. There are some new politicians, uh, I know, uh, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Even Bernie Sanders, I mean, uh, it's it's better than well, it's better than some others. But uh, he's um, apart from his age, uh, he's not enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're quickly marginalized. Um, to step outside your book for a second, so I reading your biography, it says that you worked uh, with senior Chinese public uh, officials um, with the Swiss government. Is there yeah. any perhaps insight that you could give us from this, you know, working relationship that you had, uh, talking with them or, or listening to them? Is there any insights you could you could give us? Uh, you know, from your yeah. direct experience with Chinese. Yeah, I can, I can. Well, I must say that my position was quite easy because uh, I came to China with a project uh, with uh, some money and, uh, okay, I was welcomed very well, very well welcomed. But um, I attended practically to almost all the seminars we organized for the uh, Chinese uh, officials and I was really amazed by their will to understand, to learn, to the question they asked in English or in the, we have translators, uh, they asked to the, to, to the people organizing the seminars because we had uh, not only public administration, like in France, we had the National School of Administration, the same thing in the UK, but we had also enterprises, even enterprises which have been privatized, and they wanted to know how, how they did it, with what, what strategy, what problems, how they managed the personnel, and all, all these questions, how, how they can reduce the number of people working in uh, public bureaucracy and so on. Very, very open-minded, open-minded, and uh, working very hard in the evening. They, they, they got together in small groups in uh, one of the rooms, and they, 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 they wrote down what they have learned. And when they get back, that I know that because I had contacts with some of them, they published in their province or in their, published what I have learned. 
uh, when I was in in Europe, Europe. So very open minded, uh, very very willing to 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 learn. But of course, you you must not expect that they will become like us. Uh, no, no, no. I, I give you an anecdote. I was uh, one evening. I was invited in a Chinese restaurant. Myself, a colleague of mine, a Swiss, and the leader of the group was going to come to Europe. And uh, I told him, what, what would you like to, to learn? He said, oh, um, management of personnel. I said, okay, well, we can do that. Uh, and we want to know how you do it. How you do it. I said, okay. But we can also maybe explain what are the theoretical basis for this. And he said, look at the wall. You see all these uh, uh, paintings? They are beautiful. This is what we do. I say, yes, but if you come to, to Europe to see how we manage our personnel, maybe you want to know also the theoretical basis. Look at me say, my dear fellow, the theory, we have it already. <laughs> we have it already. So they want to know how we do it, but then they take it and they put it inside their way of doing things. Uh, so this... Uh, this is what I learned. I learned in, uh, in my uh, interaction between uh, uh, then, of course, I, I learned uh, how the Chinese culture is working on a day-to-day -day basis, very, very, very quiet, very, very polite, very, they don't get excited. They, 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 uh, of course, you, you don't have to aggress them, of course, as we have seen. If you aggress them, they, they reply. As it happened during the meeting in Alaska uh, last March, uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> in, the, in, in the newspapers, the New York Times or Washington Post, you, you read, uh, you can see the astonishment. What, what's the matter with the Chinese diplomat? How dare they? Uh, surprise. But this is why there have been the changes uh, in time. In the long time, as uh, Fernand Brodel, the uh, French uh, historian of the economy, says, and if you take also the suggestions of the Chinese um, historian and philosopher Wang Hui, he says that in the long time, there are the silent transformations, and you cannot hear them, you can't even see them if, if you don't really want to see them. But, and then suddenly, they pop up in the news. And you are surprised. How oh, is possible the Chinese can do that? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I would just add also a bit about a bit of nuance, which I often talk about. That you know, I of course I draw lines where the Chinese authoritarianism begins. Uh, I'm not a fan of any form of totalitarianism or authoritarianism oh. or things like such as the social credit system, which is talked about that exists in China. But I visited. I think a decade and a half ago, I, I, I spent a few weeks, I went around China, I did a historical tour all over China, and, and you visited yourself. And so I think once you, when you, what you talk about in your book, when you, once you put yourself in the shoes of the other, you, you see they have this entire civilization and, and culture. And, and today in the media, it's just like whittled down to CCP, communist dictatorship, and China bad. And it's like there's, there's uh, more to China than than that, and, and you know there's this, all these people, this culture and society. So there has to be nuance for us to understand each other, the different cultures, countries, empires. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and getting exactly. 
to to the multipolar world. So you know, a lot has happened since we first scheduled this interview. Uh, in your book, you briefly discuss Ukraine, uh, and it seems that now the West has pushed uh, Russia's pushed too far past Russia's yeah. red, red yeah. line with yeah. Ukraine yeah. and NATO. You cannot and- treat a country with such a same for China has such a long history, such a culture. Uh, in all domains, uh, literature, music, uh, architecture, paintings, uh, uh, religion, even religion. Europeans are very close to, uh, culturally, to to Russian. Because, (laughs) I mean, uh, when when I was a teenager, I read in translation uh, Tolstoy and and so on, uh, the music, uh, Tchaikovsky uh, and so on, it is part of our culture. It is part of our culture. So I don't understand how all over the world, including in Switzerland, now there is a Russophobia, but really uh, it's worrying. It's worrying because people, they're, they're not, they do not take time to use their rational capacity to, to analyze how and why we got there. I got there, and then we can go back to the what I said at the beginning to the ideology. I I developed uh, asking answering your your question the uh, American ideology, but uh, I could do the same for for European ideology because I, after all the America came out from from Europe, uh, bringing to to the new world uh, the religion the. the, the, the idea, liberalism, and so on. Uh, so it's, we, we are the same. Basically, we, we belong to the same culture. So uh, I could say, if I if I ever published a book on the uh, imperialism, European imperialism, I would say exactly the same. Exactly the same. And uh, just to react to your, uh, uh, what you said about uh, uh, authoritarian countries, I, uh, I don't, I never been, uh, on, on that side, and, but I, I try to understand China and uh, a country like that. Well, maybe one day, one day, but they will do. They will do it by themselves. They will be, maybe convert to our values. Maybe they will convert to to democracy, to to pluripartism, to to elections, and so on. Maybe, but. Uh, in in the foreseeable future, I don't think they, they will do that. No, no. Yeah, and going back to the yeah, you mentioned that in your book uh, th- that they they won't go become a liberal democracy anytime soon. Oh. And, and mentioning the Russia issue, you know, people are angry that I'm not immediately anti-Russian and pro-Ukrainian, and I just stop and think, like you say, okay, I'm an American, but I'm also I'm also Croatian. I'm a Slav. Russians are Slavs. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Kazakhstan recently, and I huh. speak speaking Croatian. I automatic, I automatically understand fifty percent of Russian. So, oh, really? I, yeah. so I, I, you know, it's it's the, it's the same roots of, of the the language and so and ethnicity as well. You know, Russian, Croatian, and the, that whole grouping. So, like, why should I then hate you know them? And so, and just to then, I guess add the question about the multipolar world now uh russia and china as you said are coming together um we saw brazil joining them and many other countries as well uh pakistan is close he just um the prime minister of pakistan was just with uh, yeah. putin and so uh, there's now this talk about russia and china using these opportunities to push de-dollarization strengthen the yuan um and build this whole new 
you know, multipolar Eurasian world that, you know, they call it Halford McKinder's nightmare, yeah. right? Um, right? And right. so what, what are your thoughts on this world that seems to be coming into being what, what it's going to look like, you know, is the West declining and then this multipolar world is, is rising. And then what are your thoughts like in the future? What's all this going to look like? I think, I think that it's, uh, it's been coming for a long time now, a long time now, if you, if you really take time to, to go underneath underground, uh, you, you, you can see that coming. Uh, my thesis is that since the end of the second world war, that the changes were there already, but uh, there some ups and downs, some ups and downs in China in particular, even Russia in particular. So, but the trend, the long-term trend is the, we are moving, or we have moved from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, multipolar world. The, the, this is a, I, there, there have been three events in uh, last year, during last year, that, um, can prove that this is already the case. The meeting I mentioned before in uh, um, Alaska, then the meeting between Biden and, uh, and Putin in Geneva, and then the speech by Xi Jinping at the anniversary of the foundation of the Communist Party of China, uh, 921, which was the 100th uh, celebration. And he said something very, very, should be very worrying for uh, the West and for the United States in particular. He used the same word as Mao used in 1949. Mao said, from now on, our country will not be subject to humiliation and bullying. Comma, we stood up, we stood up. He used exact, without quoting Mao, he used exactly the same word. We stood up and we will not accept or being bullied by other countries. Uh, in 49, of course, Mao's statement was, I would say, a cry of hope because he was not in a position to avoid being bullied. But uh, with uh, Xi Jinping, it's more, much more than that. It's, uh, I would say, it's uh, the Xi Jinping, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Now we can. And so I think uh, we are already in a multipolar world, in a multipolar world. And the, the last event which occurred this year, so I could not put it in my book, is the joint statement published by Russia and China at the beginning of the uh, Olympic uh, Winter uh, Games in, uh, in, in Beijing. Uh, it's a document of about 12, 15 pages, depending how you print it. And it's a summary of really what they think about the old world, the American world, the world America made, as per the book by Robert Kagan, and the new world, multipolar world, multipolar world, which, and they insist on that, should not be based anymore on the rule, but the rule are the rule the Western made. The Westman, they say it must be based on international law. So it, it big difference, big difference between between the two. And of course, they are going to try to change the rules of the game. This is clear. And the, the American experts, uh, if you read uh, both the intellectuals like Robert Kagan and others, 
And if you read the documents published by, or official documents of the uh, American government on strategy, on military strategy, on the relation between China, between U.S. and the other countries, they call China and, uh, and Russia the revisionist country because they want to change the world we made. So I think we are already there. I, commenting the three events I, I mentioned before uh, that happened last year, I said that they correspond to an epochal change in the international relation. So the problem now is how, how the, the declining empire will negotiate with the new, I wouldn't say empire, but the new uh, world power. I don't think they want, they, they cannot, as I said before, they cannot. United States, they have a huge military. They have economies not doing very well. And the debt is very, very high, very high. But okay, if they take the good decision, I, I think they can uh, have, again, uh, a good economy. But it's, it's, it's very strong. They have alliances, they have partners, they have uh, a lot of uh, positive uh, uh, aspects of their of their state of them they have excellent uh, technology technology still but the Chinese are improving lot so yeah. I mean, it's, it's I think the most intelligent thing the new new establishment because this establishment is the old Obama establishment uh, the new establishment should say okay we cannot be anymore number one well, we can be number one, number one, one, number one, two, number one, three. So on equal foot with the other powers. And uh, yeah, and, uh, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Uh, and as, as I say in, in my book, the world still needs America. The world still needs America, but not as a hegemon bullying the rest of the world. No, we, some, some countries they have just said, that's enough. That's enough. And the other country, the European, I am European. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> there is a level of incompetence in our leadership all over Europe. But really, they, they don't understand what their national interests, collective interests, European Union, you know, are. They don't understand, and they they are in the stratosphere of the values. But their people, they don't eat values. They don't get uh, heating with values. They, they, they need the, the, the gas from, uh, from Russia. They need the gas from Russia. Uh, are they going to buy the, the schist uh, gas from, from the United States, uh, which destroys part of, of your environment and which costs 30 or 40% more? I mean, it's... We're seeing that now in Europe, all of our, they, they're horrible, all of our leaders, even if I use my, my own personal example of Croatia, there are literally like three or four or five intellectuals in Croatia that understand what's going on. You know, they're called Slavko Kulic and, and former Admiral Domazet Losho. And everything they've said have, has come to pass. And they say, no one's listening to us in Croatia. All of our leaders are just destroying the country. And it's the same across Europe and I, you know, I would add just to end on what you were saying. You know, China has not forgotten its century of humiliation. And I would add as a fourth example uh, of the multipolar world, you know, putting um, putting its foot down is with what just happened with Russia. And you know, Putin today is saying that uh, the America is an empire of 
uh, of lies and just the fact that Russia putting its foot down in Ukraine like it did with such confidence and standing up to the bully, that means that they wouldn't do that if they didn't, you know, have backing, you know, financial, military backing. And sure, if, the, sure. if, the, if the multipolar world was not ready to roll out, I don't think Russia would be doing what, what it's doing. So this is just a show of force that basically says, you know, new yeah. game, new game in town. Uh, I don't know if you have any final thoughts then for us. Well, that's no, I, it's difficult to forecast the, the future. <laughs> it's difficult. But I, from what I know about Russia, uh, I know China better than Russia. But, uh, I don't think that uh, Putin is not irrational, first of all. He's very, very rational man. And uh, he just wanted to tell the uh, NATO that uh, they cannot go as far as under the windows of the Kremlin. I mean, it, 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 we are there now. We are almost there. Almost there. It, it's not important. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not acceptable for, for, for Russia, Putin or no Putin. It's not acceptable for Russia. It's a, it's a threat to their, to, to their security. And as they said, and the, the Chinese say the same thing, security is indivisible. Security cannot be assured from one party at the detriment of, of the other party. It is a common security. But this uh, Russia asked for 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 a long time to be associated to the uh, management of European security. Yeltsin already, Yeltsin already. But then Clinton gave him a, a good gift, and then he said, "Okay, uh, Putin has done that several occasions. We want to be associated." But then. No, 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 no. Then what can he do? What can he do? Uh, it's it's like Japan in, in 1941. Either he accept. Uh, I'm not comparing uh, Japan and uh, Russia, but uh, Japanese imperialism was quite a, something awful. Man. But um, it's the same situation. Same situation. Uh, you have no choice. In fact, you have no choice. If, if I recall, actually, I think in 1954, the Soviets had actually wanted to join uh, NATO and were rejected. And so, yeah, so that, that's that's what's going on. Uh, it's it's our way or the highway. Um, I will highly recommend people get your book. I'll include the link in the description. You can get it on Amazon or get it from Clarity Press. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I think well, you thank you for your questions. Um, not easy to answer, but uh, I try to do my best. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, 
SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.